so children, uh, uh, grades, uh, kindergarten, uh, what is it? <laughs> kindergarten to second grade are dismissed, may be dismissed to Children's Church. You'll find it through this door over on the left side by the piano. And uh, could I ask the rest of you to open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We're going to finish Hebrews 11 today. And uh, so Hebrews 11, you'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 1192, 1192. And Hebrews, again, is, is a letter written to tired Christians to urge them on and to encourage them to uh, find new vigor and new courage and to finish their race. And we're coming to now the rousing conclusion to chapter 11 where the the writer uh, uh, just reaches out for uh, dozens of images to to overwhelm his readers with all the impressions, all their memories of all the people who have gone before and have served God in all kinds of difficult situations and have seen great victories or great trials. And so this is something that can rouse us to new vigor and new energy as well. And may God do so through his word. I'm reading uh, Hebrews 11, 32 through 40. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These all were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised, what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for so many who have gone before us and for such a great cloud of witnesses who surround us and who encourage us by their example and what they've achieved. So, Father, give us courage. Give us strength to face what is ahead of us today. We pray that your word will work in our hearts, that you yourself will speak to us through the Bible this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God and for your Holy Spirit who marks and seals your people, for your Holy Spirit who goes out into the world and convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and reveals the Son of God. Now may your Spirit do your work among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
none of you have ever seen a dead donkey. Do you know that line? It's one of my favorite lines. It comes from the book Animal Farm. And uh, the animals have overthrown the the farmer. They've chased the farmer away. And they've created a worker's paradise there on on the farm. It's uh, George Orwell's book. Most of us had to read it in junior high or high school. And uh, so all the animals are so excited about a dream, about a promise of a better world to come, a better life. And so they're carried away with the idealism of it. But then their revolution is betrayed by the leaders. And, uh, and so they're, they're so discouraged and they're so despondent. And so the animals then, you know, they're dying, they're being killed, all these terrible things are happening. And they're so intimidated and discouraged. But there's one character whose feelings, whose attitude never changes. One of my favorite characters. I love him. Benjamin the donkey. He says, you've never seen a dead donkey. And all the other animals are wondering, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Benjamin never gets carried away. He never goes along with the crowd when they're following the the, the promise. And Benjamin never, um, never gets discouraged. He just continues sitting on the fence. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm tempted to be like Benjamin. I'm tempted with a perverse admiration of skeptics and cynics just to sit on the fence and watch everybody else go through all the upheavals and go through all the trials and not to throw myself in. And this, this conclusion of the, of the 11th chapter of Hebrews is calling us to get off the fence and to jump in, and to throw ourselves in with vigor into the cause of Christ, because it's better than any other campaign, it's better than any other promise. Jesus keeps His promises. He never fails His people. And so we should um, risk our happiness for Christ, because Christ fulfills His promise. He keeps His promise. And so, uh, this, is what, this is what we're being challenged to do. Just to throw ourselves in. To put our, our lives at stake. To put our welfare at stake. To put our happiness at risk. In order to, to advance God's purpose and God's plan and cause in our little time, in our little place. And uh, to do so with confidence. You know, the world looks at these people that we just read about, there are those who've, who've uh, accomplished great things and they've conquered armies and they've uh, you know, put to rout foreign armies. They've uh, conquered the edge of the sword. They've conquered the flame. They've conquered all the terrible trials that can come upon anyone. And the world looks at people like that and says, those are successful Christians. Those are Christians who won. And the world looks at others maybe like you and me, who, you know, we, we venture forth and we fall flat on our faces. And we try to do something and we have to pay the price. We name the name of Christ and it goes badly for us. Maybe we think it's worse for us than it really is. But the world looks at these who go about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and mistreated, and says, those are the losers. They shouldn't be Christians. Why are they bothering? And what I want us to see is that God has a different perspective of who the winners are and who the losers are. And the ones who hold on to Christ's promise and don't lose hope, those are the winners. And the ones who sit on the fence, 
are the losers. So God is establishing his kingdom. He's moving his plans forward. Some of us are risking everything, risking our happiness to be part of what God is doing and to advance his cause. If you do so, you might win and you might lose. But I want you to do so because you can't lose. Christ will not let any of his faithful servants lose in the end. When God counts the winners and losers, he does so in a different way. And so we're, we're looking at, as we look at this passage, we see it really breaks into two parts. It splits right down the middle, in the middle of verse 35, in the middle of a sentence. Because the first, uh, the first list, starting from verse 32 to the middle of, of verse 35, is all the winners. And then the second list, starting from the, the second part of verse 35 and going down through verse 38, is all the losers. All the people for whom things didn't go right and they didn't get what they would have hoped for, and the world counts them to be losers. But in God's judgment, they're also winners, along with the rest. And so I want to urge you to risk your happiness first, because God might let you win. God might let you win. You might turn out to, to experience sort of the wonderful things that these people in this first list experienced you might experience the great power of God in and through you. So be bold. Take a risk. Take a chance to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here are the examples that, that we get here. We'll start with Gideon. Gideon. Uh, he was hiding in his wine press uh, because the Midianites had come. I have to tell you who the Midianites are. This is all in the book of Judges. The Midianites were these people from the east who came in on their camels. They came roaring into town and they spread out like locusts over the whole land. And they consumed everything that was there. They would come just at harvest time and take all the good stuff in the whole country and enjoy it for a while. And when the party was over, they would get on their camels and take off again for some other place. I like to think of the Midianites as being the hell's angels of their day. You see, instead of Harleys and choppers, they came on camels. And they had all these gold chains and, uh, you know, all the decorations on their camels. And they just came and they had a big party and they took everybody's stuff and then they'd jump on their camels and head off and just leave a cloud of dust behind. So it was, it was a horror. It was a horrible time. And so Gideon had a little harvest of wheat and he was hiding in the pit in a wine press where nobody could see him and he was threshing the wheat down there so no one would see clouds of chaff flying around and say, let's go get the wheat. So he's, uh, he's secret because he's afraid. And the angel comes and says, Hail, mighty man, go in the strength you have. And God encourages and builds Gideon's faith. And Gideon, with 300 guys, takes on the hundreds of thousands of Midianites. 300 guys, oh, did I tell you, armed with what? Clay jars and torches and trumpets. They take on these hordes of Midianites and they drive them out and they, uh, they routed foreign armies. Barak. Barak, actually another guy who was kind of afraid. But the prophetess Deborah told him, go and take 10,000 men and go up to Mount Tabor 
and I will entice the king, King Jabin, to come and send his army after you. And uh, you've got to appreciate what this means. Uh, Jabin had, like the Air Force of the day, he had 900 chariots. Uh, this was a massive force. The horse-drawn chariot was this huge tactical advantage Israel didn't have. And it took a certain technological ability, and they hadn't, Israel hadn't quite upgraded to that, and they were kind of hesitant to get into it, all those things for whatever reasons. So they were at a huge tactical disadvantage. So they go up on a hill where the chariots can't run around on the hill, and they all gather up there, and they're surrounded by this vast army on the plain, of, uh, the, the plain there by the, by the Kishon River. And uh, so that was the promise, was that God will entice them to come. Well, God enticed them to come, and the bait was the tender little juicy Barak and his 10,000 men who were about to be devoured. But what Sisera the commander and Jabin the king didn't know is that God was fighting for Israel. And so storms came and floods came and the plain there by the, by the river Kishon became flooded. The chariots were useless. The tables turned. The tactical advantage became that of those on the hill who then attacked and swept the field and won the victory. So, you, you know, dare. Dare to trust God. Put, put your happiness at risk. God might let you win. And uh, what a wonderful day that would be. Then we've got Samson. Samson, a very strange character to read about in the book of Judges also. But he was a one-man army. One man. You know, Israel, the, the, the Judahites, his, uh, his tribesmen, had uh, tied him up with seven new ropes to hand him over to the Philistines. Because the Philistines were like, they were like leaders. They were the people in charge. They were oppressing Israel because Israel was sinning and not following the Lord. And Samson kept going over there and killing off Philistines and creating war and creating havoc. And so the Philistines came with a huge army and they were going to attack. And Judah said, well, what can we do? And they said, just give us one man and we'll go home. And so they tied Samson up with seven new ropes and they bring him. And as, as the Philistines see their enemy coming all tied up, they start to shout and yell and the ropes became like burnt wicks, burnt candle wicks. On, on Samson as he just ripped them right off. And he goes and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey and he begins his, his one-man battle. All the people of Judah are fleeing. The whole army's running away. And it's Samson by himself. God can do it. God can, can, uh, can bless someone in an astounding way. It wasn't that Samson was so great. It's that God was with him because you know what happened when he got his hair cut. So it was that God was with him. It wasn't that he was such a great guy. God is with you. So be bold and take a chance for the Lord. Jephthah, he was a nobody. He was asked to lead the people of Israel. He led them in a tremendous victory. David, another nobody. And he, he sees the, the, this champion Goliath challenging the army of the Lord, the people of the Lord, and he can't stand it. So he goes out there and he's got his five smooth stones and his little shepherd's sling and his little stick that he uses to take care of sheep. And, uh, and he takes on Goliath and Goliath is scoffing at him, but Goliath falls. And David cuts his head off with his own sword. Samuel, the little boy handed over 
given over in fulfillment of a vow to the priesthood and living in the temple. And uh, raised, he becomes the leader of the nation. And God doesn't let a word that he speaks fall to the ground. And so you have these who administer kingdoms, who, uh, who administer justice, who conquer kingdoms, and God is with them and they, they succeed in tremendous ways. But let's just look down at this last example down in verse 35 of women who receive back their dead raised to life again. Even death itself, when it's already come, is reversible. And when the ultimate challenge has already overwhelmed us, it's still not too late. And God still is able to save and do wonderful, amazing things for his people. And so uh, this is a reference to a couple of women in the Old Testament um, who were sponsors of the prophets Elijah and another of the prophet Elisha. And each of them had a son who died. And uh, the prophet came and raised the son to life again. And in each of those cases, the woman had to take a risk. She had to risk her happiness. And so I think especially of that woman, the prophet Elijah had prophesied famine on the land and drought, and there was no rain, and everything was drying up. And so God sent Elijah to a foreign town, Zarephath, where he had told him, I have prepared a widow who is going to you know, feed you throughout this famine. So Elijah gets there, and here's this woman out there, out there picking up sticks to make a fire. And so he calls out to her and says, would you get me some water? She gets him some water. She said, would you cook me some food? And she says, listen, you see these sticks I'm picking up? I'm going to go cook my last cup of flour for the last loaf of bread for my son and me to eat, and then we're going to die. So how can I give you anything? And he says, okay, do what you say, but before you cook anything for yourself and your son, cook some for me. And, uh, and so she goes and does it. She risks her happiness for the prophet, for the man of God, because the Lord had said, the bag of flour, the jar of flour will not be empty and the jar of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. She took a risk and God provided for her and then her son died. And God raised her son. We need to be people of courage. Let me challenge you. Would you keep your place there in Hebrews 11 and turn back to the book of Daniel. And I just want to challenge you with, with one last example. Those who escaped the fury of the flames. Uh, let me see, Daniel chapter 3, and it's on page 876. The example, uh, actually not of Daniel, but Daniel's friends, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, page 876, and we'll be looking at verse 12 starting at verse 12. And what's happening, what's happening here is that, is that uh, someone's turning in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they're not going along with the program. 
The program was that King Nebuchadnezzar had built a huge 90-foot golden statue and that whenever any music was played, everyone was supposed to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's huge statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as leaders of the nation, are present at the assembly and they're still on their feet. They're not worshiping the statue. And so they're turned in in verse 12. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar orders that they be uh, brought before him, and then he challenges them to their face. Verse 13, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the flute, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into, the, into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, when people say things like that in the Old Testament, you know what's coming. You know, someone's putting a challenge against the very name of God. So, look how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded. They risked everything. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. No, they don't defend themselves. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We have a God whom we serve, but we will not serve your gods. And so... Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar has the heat turned up seven times as hot. Even the soldiers, the strongest soldiers who, who bind them and throw them in the fire are overwhelmed by the flames. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, three men are thrown into the fire. The king looks down into the furnace and what does he see but four men walking around unharmed and unbound. And so he calls out, come, come out Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. What is this? And uh, your God saved you take a risk for the Lord. Just speak up for His name. God might do something great. Let me tell you about a young lady at age 16. Uh, she's been ranked as one of Time Magazine's most influential people. And she was number 35 on Forbes' 2008 list of highest earning celebrities. This is what her father says. As a family, we still go to church, we read the Bible together, and we try to practice our faith in our industry. The Bible says faith without works is dead. So my wife and I encourage our daughter and her brothers to show their faith in their work. And she'll be the first to tell you she's proud of her Lord and where she comes from. Of course, I worry how it will be when they get older, he admits. I'm a big fan of Hannah Montana. That's who this is. This is uh, Miley, Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I've, I haven't even, ever even seen 60 seconds of the show. I, I don't think I could endure it for even that long. 
uh, you know, it's, it's uh, teeny bopper stuff. You know, you don't expect real high artistic standards. But at least here is someone, you know, fulfilling that niche. And instead of using the usual enticements of, you know, the degradation that you usually expect in this kind of entertainment, she's just standing for Christ. She and her family, come what may. And that's where she stands, that's who she is, that's what she's going to be. And God is, look at her, she's doing great, she's doing fantastic. I mean, you know, you can buy the Hannah Montana deodorant, you can buy the Hannah Montana clothes, I mean, she's doing fantastic. You know, God might do something great for you if you stand for Him. What if you stood up in the workplace and you said who you are and you said who Jesus is and you stood by the truth? Well, maybe someone would get annoyed with you. Maybe someone is just allergic to Christianity and allergic to Christ. And you might, you, know, you might get in trouble. But maybe someone would appreciate your integrity. If you stood up against deceiving the regulators, cheating the customers, lying to the other employees, and you stood for the truth and integrity, then your boss would realize this is someone I can trust. And maybe it would go well with you. Take a risk to do what's right because maybe God will do something tremendous and wonderful for you. Um, what, what, if you um, what if you took time to invest yourself in ministry, to prepare yourself to serve spiritually, to help others grow spiritually, to be able to teach, to be able to lead a Bible study, to be able to teach children. You've got a dream You've got a passion, but you're just chickening out. What if you were bold and you went and did it? God might do something amazing. He might let you win. What if, uh, what if you were to offer to pray for that relative, uh, for that friend at work, for that neighbor? And, uh, oh, it's kind of spooky. You know, they'd say, pray. Uh, what if you were to talk about Jesus? to people you know who don't know the Lord? What if you were to, to share the gospel? God might do something really tremendous. Is there really a God who answers prayer and who cares for his people? Would you be bold enough to try and see what he would do? And so, uh, church leader, church member, speak up. And say what's true. It might cost you. It might be tough on you. But it's worth it. It's worth it. God might do something great. There's this strange verse in the Gospel of John. It's kind of puzzled me for a long time. I think that this chapter gives us some perspective to understand it. Jesus tells his disciples, I have sent you to reap what others have worked for. Others have done the hard work and I've sent you in just to reap and to enjoy what they've worked for. It sure would be great to be an apostle and just go into Jerusalem and preach the gospel and 3,000 are saved. It sure would be great to be able to just go and heal a lame man in the name of Jesus and he's well and he's jumping up and down and 2,000 more added to the number. It sure would be great. But you know, someone has to pay the price. So risk your happiness for Christ because He might let you win.
risk your happiness for Christ because he won't let you lose. So we look at the the rest of the section. Back in Hebrews 11, we have from the end of verse 35 down through 38, the list of those who, according to the world's perspective, were losers. And uh, there was Daniel's friends who who faced the king and said, "We we will not submit to your gods, we will not worship your gods. And they were saved. But there are others who it seems like this verse is directly alluding to verse um, uh, refuse to be released that they might receive a better resurrection. Verse 35. Others were tortured and refused to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. And it seems like it's referring directly to some people in the history of Israel who were tortured. The word used for torture here is a specific word that refers to stretching someone out like the head of a drum and then beating on them. And that's exactly how the Maccabees, the, the, the Jewish patriots called the Maccabees, the, the, were, were, were put to death. And they were challenged to renounce the one God and to accept the gods of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the king, and they refused one after the other of the sons of Maccabeus and they were put to death. And as they were put to death, they testified of their faith in a resurrection and a judgment to come and that's what gave them courage to stand. They hoped for a better resurrection, not just to be raised from the dead for a while to die again, but the resurrection into life that is real life. So for them... To be a loser in this age isn't so important if you're a winner in God's judgment. And so we have uh, the jeers, the flogging, the chains, the being stoned. All of these were experienced by the prophet Jeremiah. They've been, they were even experienced by people in the days of the early church. Sawed in two, uh, something gruesome. We don't read about it in the Old Testament. It may be that uh, Isaiah the prophet met his end in this way because there's a, a little book called Ascension of Isaiah which reflects some kind of tradition. It may be a true tradition that that's how Isaiah was put to death under the evil king Manasseh. Prophets typically went around in, in, in rough hair garments, goatskin, sheepskins. They lived out in the wilderness where there was no good house. They were rejected and they paid the price for their pronouncements. Sometimes we have to pay the price to name the name of Jesus. Sometimes we get to go and do the easy work and reap huge benefits where someone else has done the work. God is having mercy on a, on a generation of little girls. He's having genera- a mercy on, on a, an upcoming generation and on our nation and allowing Hannah Montana to do her thing in a way that upholds decent values. But maybe God will not handle, handle your life in the same way. And you might, you might go down with the ship. You might be the one who pays the price so that someone else can do the easy work. So when all of these things are going on, and these things were going on for the readers of this letter, the original readers, Where is God? Where is God? 
If you just flip back a couple pages. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Look what the, the readers of this book had to go through. They were tired Christians because they faced some real difficulties. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. That's the confidence that God won't let you lose. Where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God when his people suffer? On the cross. Redeeming through suffering. And just as Jesus came to redeem through suffering, so perhaps sometimes he may send us In fact, the Apostle Paul insists that it will not be any other way for the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. We must endure much suffering and persecution to name the name of Christ. So the New Testament has a very well-developed theology of suffering. What would these people say to us, these who were losers in the eyes of the world, who trusted that God would not let them lose in the end, what would they say to us, tired Christians, today, if we could hear them shouting to us from the stands? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. It's amazing how when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read the stories of Christians who actually were brought to that place of having to pay the price for naming the name of Christ, how they had joy in it, how they rejoiced, they were glad, they sang. God gives joy to his people. Because when you come to that point, when you come to that place, you realize that heaven is very close. And you realize that you are very much right in the same spot as Jesus, that he is with you. And the delights of heaven and the presence of Christ become so vivid to us. And if that is what has captured your heart, if that is what has won you over, then you will be filled with joy at that moment. I believe it. But if that isn't what fills your heart, if that isn't what has captured you, then you will abandon Christ at a time like that. Count it joy. Don't quit. And another thing we shouldn't do, when everything goes wrong, when, when God seems to step away from us and abandon us and leave us to face the jeers and the flogging and whatever it might be, don't diagnose. Don't try to figure out, oh, what did I do wrong? How have I stepped out of God's will? I must have done something wrong because obviously if I were following Christ, I wouldn't be experiencing these difficulties and trials. So what did I do wrong? Where did I displease the Lord. Don't diagnose it. Endure it. Face it. Pray about it. Pray for deliverance. But don't diagnose it. Don't try to figure out how you can follow God's will so that you'll never experience 
what Jeremiah experienced, what Isaiah experienced, what Jesus experienced. But figure out how you can be faithful. Figure out how you can do His will today where you are with what you've got. How you can be wise and walk according to God's Word. And God might let you win, but He won't let you lose. I called up my mom a couple months ago. She did something she's never done to me before. She told me that uh, she's got to hang up, that she'll call me back, but her show is on. Uh, but I had to forgive her because it's a show that really only comes on like three times a year. There's the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. And it only lasts about, you know, three minutes or something. So, fine. So I hung up, you know, said goodbye and everything, and hung up, and I decided I'd turn on the TV. And so Cindy and I sat there and watched. And, okay, so everybody's, you know, the horses are getting in place and everything's going on and they're talking about what's going to happen. And uh, so the race is off and they're running and there are the, these few, few horses at the front, you know, that are, that are vying for the first place. And uh, there's some horse way, way in the back. And you just feel sorry for the poor guy. You know, how can he keep running? You know, he's so far behind. And uh, the most amazing thing happened. They, they came around the last curve and that horse that was in the very back passed up one after another after another. He was, uh, you know, so low seated. You know, the tickets for him were like $2 if you were going to bet and you'd get like 132 payout. The odds were totally against a total long shot. Passes up one horse after another and then things opened up and he passed up the whole group seven lengths ahead. Once he got out in front, it's like all of a sudden he turned it on. And he began to run. And he put seven lengths behind him before the second place horse. Mind that bird. Of course, he didn't do so well in the, in the freakness, but God counts the winners at the end. Let's pray. Father, encourage us. Encourage us with your word, with your presence, with this reminder that you will not let your people down, that you will sustain us, uphold us, and keep us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to go ahead and skip the, uh, the last song since the preacher was so long-winded. But um, we'll have some members of the prayer team here at the end. And uh, 